Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I talked to Raphael Baer and George Eaton about the North, Thatcher and Boris. Stuart McConey tells us how to write about the North. In Steadman and I chat about the inexorable rise of Bitcoin, and Philip Morn reads a poem by Simon Armitage. I'm joined by our political editor, Raphael Baer, and George Eaton, editor of The Staggers, to talk a little bit about, well, this idea of two nations, really, George. So um, tell, explain the idea behind uh, what we've written in the in the issue this week. Well, the North-South divide is something that politicians have worried about for for centuries, really. But it's, it has got worse recently. At the start of the recession, a lot of people actually assumed that the gap would narrow because it was London... Uh, which had an economy so reliant on on finance and property, which which was where uh, the crash hit. What you've actually seen now is it is, is it widening again. So unemployment in in most of the major northern regions is still above ten percent, while it's it's uh, falling dramatically in the south. There's some fairly startling figures, aren't there? So you um, you've written that one unemployment has fallen to just five point nine percent in the southeast. It's risen to ten point two percent in the northeast and eight point nine percent in Yorkshire and the Humber. 96% of all un- uh, all employment growth in England in the past year has taken place in London, the South East, South West and East of the country. Is that because of reliance on public sector, disproportionate amount of public sector employment, and therefore obviously cuts are going to have an impact on that, which would also suggest that, well, the Conservatives are very keen to argue that actually their austerity programme has worked to the extent that job creation has happened faster than certainly a lot of pessimists on, on the Labour side and the left would argue. The the idea that just clearing away the what they what Tories would see as excess but public sector jobs doesn't allow a spontaneous mushrooming of private sector jobs if jobs haven't been created in those areas that were most reliant on the state for employment. Yeah, absolutely. The North has been hit harder by austerity, but um, another point which which quite a lot of Northerns make is there is a lack of investment here as well. The the sort of chunk of infrastructure and transport investment that goes to London compared to the north is 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 remarkable and I think this is in part due to its political weakness so you have Boris he's a cheerleader for London you have Alex Salmon he's a cheerleader for Scotland they attract investment. You've got John Prescott. (laughs) Well isn't this um, Tim Montgomery's column in the Times this morning is about this idea of an English parliament which would be in I think he suggests Manchester as Mm. one of the places but there is a big problem isn't there that you're right that there is it's kind of a it's kind of a region that doesn't have anybody particularly speaking for it and I can't think how many I mean you interviewed Raf this week Patrick McLaughlin 
who is not even that northern. No, he's a middle. He describes himself as a Midlander, but um, he makes this point actually in defence of HS2, the high-speed rail link, that. Uh, no one really complains when you know, tens of billions of rail investment go to London, but suddenly you try and put it up, you know, across the Midlands, and as he would see it, trying to bring the North and South closer together and giving the North it, its fair share of investment, uh, and suddenly you have um, conservatives up in arms about uh, rail lines kind of slicing through their beautiful Shire backyards, uh, and Labour as. Um, Patrick McLaughlin calls it playing silly buggers about whether or not this is money that should be spent. Um, I mean, I personally found his argument quite compelling, actually, to say, well, at some stage, maybe some of this, if there is money to, to be spent, then uh, shoveling that bounty up north is probably good politics as well as good economics. Do you think that an English parliament is the answer? Well, the reason I, I made the joke about John Prescott a second ago is they did talk about having an, an assembly, regional, a regional yeah. assembly. There was even a referendum um, for assembly for the northeast, mm-hmm. uh, and it just failed catastrophically. I, I think the problem you have is that um, you need a coincidence of authentic identity and political institution. So it works having devolution in Scotland. It works having. Uh, an assembly uh, in Wales. It works having a London mayor because London has a very strong intrinsic identity. Obviously, the the regions of England have identities, but how you express that through political institutions becomes a little bit more complicated. And just heaping on new layers of government to try and 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 sort of channel that, what you'd actually get. Oh, I'm going to start sounding like a small state Tory here, which I'm not. But you would end up with a, just another load of elected officials with tiny mandates probably returned on a with sort of 20 percent of the vote because no one turns out for those sorts of elections uh just be a jostling elbows with local councillors westminster mps i'm not sure it would solve anything really and george wasn't the great hope at one point that elected mayors would take on some of this yes yeah, so in fact the only city which um voted in favor of was, was bristol so all the major northern cities manchester leeds sheffield newcastle voted against it. And that was a political blow to the Tories because that was one means they thought of reviving their support in the North. So if you could have sort of Northern Borises, basically, people might start to <laughs> give... a terrifying <laughs> idea. Well, the Tories are looking yeah. again. But this is, that, that's very interesting. But partly part of the reason that happened is precisely because a lot of those cities are controlled by Labour. The Labour Council did not want a um, some other institution, some other politician, uh, and sort of trampling on their turf and the only way you're going to get turnout in a referendum that sort of thing is if the machine on the ground gets out the vote so what you actually had i think was um the labor controlled councils the labor party in those areas saying well no we're not sure about this so they didn't get their activists out they didn't tell people to vote and they effectively used their machine politics to stop the creation of alternative institutions that might one day threaten Mm -hmm. their hegemony Good. I think that's the first appearance of the word hegemony on the podcast. Hopefully not the last. Um, and just to slightly broaden it out a bit, um, you've also written a piece, George, for the magazine that talks about essentially the, the battleground for the next election being whether or not the Tories can make any headway at all. Um, the statistics were quite shocking. I didn't realise that 40 years ago the Conservatives had a majority on Manchester City Council. Um, and now the party holds just 43 of the 158 parliamentary seats in the three northern regions. Is there, are those people coming back? No, they're not at the moment, and austerity is making it harder to win them back. So I really looked in, you know, just why is it that the Tories do so bad? I mean, some say it's it's class, but then rich Northerners are less likely to vote Tory than poor Southerners. Some say it's their employment status, but 
private sector workers in the north are less likely to vote Tory than public sector workers in the south. So, you know, what is it? Um, and really, it's the toxicity of the Tory brands that Northerners mm. think David are more, much more likely to think David Cameron's out of touch and much more likely to think that the Conservatives are the party of the rich. It's not that they're sort of ideologically wedded to, to social, socialism. And in fact, they're prepared to support a right wing party like UKIP in some of them. Yeah, I mean, the, but, the UKIP's performance, I think, in those areas, in some Labour areas in the May uh, European elections next year will be very interesting to watch because they did. They came second in South Shields by election. They came second, I think, in Rotherham, and uh, there are clearly people who's who would respond to a pretty right wing conservative platform in some ways, who are who have that cultural inoculation against voting Tory, who don't have that where it comes to UKIP and UKIP. And if you and if you look at sort of hard right parties across the rest of Europe. Um, what you see is that first they sort of plucked the low-hanging electoral fruit from uh, weakened, discredited Conservative parties, but then they came for the left as well, and they started taking those voters from them. And sort of fast, sort of forward-looking Labour politicians see the potential for UKIP to start doing them real damage in the north. Well, one of the things, Raf, that I find most interesting about your interview with Patrick McLaughlin is you put to him this this problem. So he he spoke a lot about how people he worked with in the mines w- were very culturally and economically conservative, but they would they just wouldn't vote Tory. And then this idea about whether or not the bashing of the trade unions is actually for a lot of people they go well actually my trade union was very helpful when I was laid off or when we tried this happened or that happened and whether or not whether or not the Tory party is too wedded to bashing trade unions when actually they're a, a popular institution with lots of people I'm not so I'm not so sure they're a popular institution with lots of people I do think they are in the sort of wider when people don't look at it through a prism of ideology they are seen as working class institutions and people who aren't necessarily bothered about the ins and outs of what happened in the selection process in a particular Labour seat and exactly who Len McCluskey is, when they see the Conservatives gunning very hard for trade union bosses, um, it just comes across as just a bunch of Tory toffs who ultimately don't either understand or probably don't really like working class people very much. And obviously that's a massive problem for the Tories. I mean, my own view... I think the Conservative Party really missed an opportunity, interestingly, w- earlier this year uh, when Margaret Thatcher died. And there was a great sort of triumphal parade of hooray for Margaret Thatcher's victory, which was understandable. She was a very important figure for the Conservative Party and the country, for lots of the country. But that was their opportunity, I think, to say we celebrate the great woman and her legacy, but we also recognise the need to make amends to some communities for whom this woman was a- an absolute villain. And I don't. I think that could have been possible. And I think a sophisticated Tory response would have sort of said, "Now is our chance to build bridges against those people who, essentially, since Thatcher, have never considered voting mm-hmm. Tory." And I think they really blew that opportunity by just going for full-on kind of triumphal proceeding through Westminster and having massive pops at the BBC because they were going to air something that was just happened to people have bought the single. But yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, the, the Tory Party has been very insistent about all the things it thinks Ed Miliband should apologise for. Not quite so clear-eyed about all the things that people feel exactly. the Tories have to apologise for. And I, and I put this to a sort of a very senior conservative, sort of someone on the modernising wing one to that. And I said, you know, ultimately what what really needs to happen to, to decontaminate the brand in the North is you probably need a moment where a leader actually goes to a, you know, a mining community and, and just says sorry 
about that. Even if you even if you believe that macroeconomically the sacrifice was necessary and is what needed to be done, until you have that sort of Willy Brandt at the, the Warsaw Ghetto Memorial moment, sorry, it's like over the top analogy, but but you know what I mean. You'll you'll never cut through there, I think. Um, and the the sort of look of slight alarm and incredulity on the face of this Tory made me realise that I'm not sure they really understand that yet. Mm. And just quickly to finish, George, um, last night Boris Johnson made some. I think a series of deeply peculiar, but then also some very newsworthy comments about a whole range of things, ranging from IQ to social mobility to why he believes that inequality is good as a kind of engine of, 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 of envy and therefore a you know, driver of capitalism. Why, why did he make that speech now? Well, the reason he made it now is because he is quite clearly positioning himself to return to Parliament in, in 2015. He is worried because he sees people like Theresa May, uh, maybe Michael Gove snapping at his heels. Um, his star has dimmed slightly. People are beginning to think, actually, has Boris has Boris peaked? And here he is now claiming the mantle of, as as we were just saying, the woman that the Conservatives still revere. Um, and in some ways, I actually admired his candour because rather than hiding behind euphemisms and platitudes like a lot of Tories, David Cameron do. Here he came out and said, look, I think inequality is inevitable and desirable. Um, and you can agree or disagree with me. I imagine that must be phenomenally popular with the awkward squad of people who hated Tory modernisation, which again has been a theme that we've been discussing in recent weeks. Is that a vision that can ever, RAF, lead the Tories to a majority? Um, the short answer is no, um, for the reasons that we were discussing earlier. I think Boris is being been quite clever here, actually, because he, and he is a very clever man and a very astute politician. What he understands is that this stage of the cycle, his audience is, you know, what in technical terms you call the, the selectorate rather than the electorate, the people who are avidly paying attention to who might be the next leader of the Conservative Party and who will be voting in an election to choose the leader of the Conservative Party. I mean, this is, interestingly, this is what Ed Miliband understood better than David Miliband in the leadership election for the Labour Party. So that first win over your own side to get the blooming job and then worry about reaching out to the rest of the country, whereas David was obsessed with thinking, no, I must say things that could make me electable as Prime Minister. No one cares at that stage. Um, and at this precise moment, what really matters to Boris is locking in the Conservative Party. He can then just say, the exact opposite in three years time and people like us will be going oh but this is terribly hypocritical you've said you said something different three years ago actually no one else will have noticed or will really care that much so i think he's being quite clever here that's an extraordinarily bleak view of politics and i think we'll probably end on that note thank you george and raf in this week's magazine stuart mcconey wrote an essay how to write about the North. Here's the beginning of it. First, don't define your terms. The North is not so much a place as a national myth, so don't confuse your reader with any specific or detailed references to, say, Merseyside or County Durham. The Northerners won't thank you for it anyway, being petty churls riven with factional differences and impacted grudges. Assume that everyone knows what and where the North is. Don't attempt anything as prosaic or useful as an actual definition. Depending on the kind of piece you're trying to write, you'll probably want to convey something of one of the following. Re-return to Road to Wigan Pier, again revisited. Concerned liberal goes back up north on any convenient Orwell anniversary to find that they're all still eating chips and dying of pneumonia. It's flat white skinny latte, not flat caps. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Anymore. Wide-eyed, well-meant, did you know they have Wi-Fi and sushi-style travel blog occasioned by Hull winning the City of Culture 2017? The shame of my Jewsbury. Daily Telegraph piece by a Today programme presenter who left in 1968 based on inaccurate rates of teenage pregnancy and an obese family he once saw on the Jeremy Kyle show. Auntie's folly. Screed of burly concealed contempt and suspicion, usually in the Daily Mail online, on the BBC relocating to Salford, straplined, Bill Turnbull fears for his life every time he parks car, say friends. And let me read you another bit. What about... What could be more northern than crime and violence? This should be reflected in your piece. Remember that different rules apply here and you must get the terminology right. Shoreditch is edgy, whereas Longsight is dangerous. Bow is real. Whitehaven is run down. Hackney is gritty and bracing. Rotherham is bleak and menacing. Other good words to drop are blighted, desperate, red brick, eyesore, hen party, fake tan and Greggs. Food and shopping in the north is, as we all know, uniformly dreadful. However, if you're a London-based restaurant critic, is there any other kind, it will behove you occasionally to placate your paper's advertisers by leaving NW1 for the north. Hopefully this will be to somewhere civilised like the Inn at Whitewell or Sharrow Bay. But if, God forbid, it's Carlisle or Leeds, be sure to let any minor discomfiture be reflected in your review. Patronise wearily. Imply that the sushi, iberico ham, marabone granita is probably passable for Cumbria, but it would be a laughingstock in Hampstead. Mock the staff's accents and the chef's pretensions to metropolitan standards. Do include something disparaging about any difficulties you had parking the car or getting a taxi. The tone should be high-handed and sneering, but with a hint of noblesse oblige. I'm joined by a science and tech blogger Ian Stedman to talk about Bitcoin. Now, um, Alex Hearn, who some listeners to the podcast might remember as our former senior Bitcoin correspondent, has now um, defected to The Guardian, where he got a front-page story this morning about a guy who chucked out his computer hard drive onto a landfill in Newport, um, and with it, an amount of Bitcoin, well, a key for an amount of Bitcoin, that is now worth £6.5 million. Dollars. 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 It's about £4 million. Um, so let's go right back to the beginning who or what is a Bitcoin? Uh, a Bitcoin is a virtual, uh, what's called a cryptocurrency, which is, it's all based on security protocols and very complicated uh, algorithms. Um, it works uh, in a very simple way. Um, it works by, uh, imagine you have a long string of letters and numbers that represents a, a coin, as it were, or, a, or a, that's your wallet. Um you have bitcoins, which are units of currency, and you trade them across a network by sending them back and forward like you would with PayPal or something like that. 
Um, the way it gets clever is that there's no central authority like a central bank or whatever issuing currency. It's all kind of done peer-to-peer, a bit like BitTorrent, um, where every single computer that is linked into the Bitcoin network verifies every transaction on the network. Who runs the Bitcoin network? No one. We all do together. That's that's what's so clever about it. Everyone who has Bitcoins is equally in charge of it, as it were. And the more people who have Bitcoin, the safer it gets because it becomes harder and harder for people to fake transactions. Because if you think about it, you're sending money from one person's computer to another. That transaction is then broadcast to the rest of the network. And the rest of the network will hit, receives that and goes, yes, I verified that. And they broadcast it out again, saying that's a verified transaction. Every 10 minutes or so, a new, uh, what's called the blockchain, which is the public record of all Bitcoin transactions, gets updated with every new transaction based on whatever the majority of computers in the Bitcoin network says okay. were the valid transactions. Does that make That sense? sort of makes sense. Yeah. Um, who invented Bitcoin? Uh, a man, well, we don't know. Someone called Satoshi... Nakamoto, who everyone assumes is a pseudonym for someone, um, someone there was a there's a very large cryptography uh, mailing list which a few years ago this white paper which is about four pages long which laid out the the sort of framework for Bitcoin was published on sent out to all the cryptography experts around the world and it it kind of detailed how you create bitcoins which is um, the you basically solve complex algorithm like. Uh, algorithmic problems and as you do that you you're said to mine bitcoins and that's where they come from but uh the, the system that he developed or they some people think it might be a, con- a conglomerate of people um just kind of they published this paper and disappeared and then it's become this massive thing and to this day no one knows where satoshi nakamoto is um although he actually he she it whoever still owns the most number of bitcoins in, in a wallet and everyone knows it's there because every bitcoin record is Every Bitcoin transaction is public, so we can see all the different wallets. We know that the biggest one is there, and it was the one that created the entire system is there. But he can never spend it because as soon as he spends it, he reveals who he is. So it's, it's all very mysterious. Mr. Kind of it's like a William. The, it's like a William Gibson novel. It's ridiculous. Bitcoin. One thing that strikes me is surely if you mine bitcoins by solving algorithmic problems, then couldn't you get a really powerful computer and cause a huge deflation by essentially quantitatively easing bitcoins? That is what you should be able to do. But the it's very clever in that the problems get harder as it goes along. There's um uh, on a logarithmic scale where I think approximately by 2017 half of all bitcoins that will ever be created will have been created. And sometime around like 2100, it will run out. There'll be 21 million Bitcoins in circulation and that's it. Um, and I think we've already reached the point where it basically it's, you make more money by trading Bitcoins than by mining, by mining them. them. Yeah, There's, there was a really cool thing I read today by um, a security alert put out by F-Secure, which is a large internet security company. Um, have you heard of the Internet of Things? Yeah, yeah. So it's so, like trees that sort of speak to you. Yeah, it's like everything in your house, your fridge is gonna know, be connected to the internet and be able to order My milk. My fridge should not attain sentience. Yeah, so that would not be a good but thing. What hackers have realised is that instead of buying computers and mining bitcoins, what you do is you take over people's computers over the internet with malware and viruses. So it's like essentially like bot farms. So yeah, it's exactly. Kind of idea that you just have you have huge... millions of computers around the world that are doing it for you. There was a, a programmer at EA had used people who were playing games of EA's, EA's social networking multiplayer network had sort of downloaded malware to their computers and while they were idling away was using customers' computers to mine bitcoins. Um, but did F-Sec- he get sacked for that? He did and EA had to pay out quite a large settlement. Okay. Um, but um, F-Secure said that 
the problem with the Internet of Things is a lot of these things like internet connected fridges and microwaves aren't going to be, uh, you know, virus protected or have firewalls. So you're, you're starting to see this problem of people hacking people's fridges to mine bitcoins, oh which is ridiculous. Um, it's, it's all a bit very strange, especially because bitcoins really don't have much of a use. Well, this is what I wanted to come to. So the big news this week is that each Bitcoin, which I imagine like a large gold coin, yeah. is now um, worth a thousand dollars. It just yesterday broke a thousand dollars for the first time, which, but, considering a year ago, it was worth about eight dollars, is pretty. But remarkable. the problem being that that it's incredibly difficult to cash in. Yeah, there there are cash out rather. There are a few companies. There's a pub in Hackney that accepts Bitcoin if you want to buy a pint. But why would you want to? Because the price is going up so fast that. You know, you could buy two pints by waiting an extra hour, which is kind of a problem with the, the, the price there. So I remember the late, great Alex Hearn confidently informing me that this was a bubble. Is it was that a bubble. still the accepted wisdom? When he said that, it was a bubble. In April, there was um, a bit... Um, most famously, bitcoins could be used to buy drugs online because they're sort of anonymous, as long as you don't reveal that you own a specific wallet. Like, every transaction's public, but... You don't have to register for a wallet, so as long as you keep yourself anonymous in that way, you can buy stuff illegally over the internet. Um, but when he said that, that was like March, April, mm. which is when the first sort of main it kind of started to go mainstream, and there was a bubble. Undeniably, it, it jumped from about eight to ten dollars to about two hundred dollars in a, the course of two weeks or something ridiculous, and then it popped and it all went down. But it's gone back up again and. It's probably going to be another bubble and it's going to break again. It's going to go down because it's just driven by speculation right now. Um, And it's really strange because as long as it has any practical use whatsoever, like there's a reason to have Bitcoins because you can spend stuff. Virgin Galactic announced this week they're going to accept Bitcoin for flights to space. Which is ridiculous. Well, they'll just do anything for publicity, not to cast dispersions on Virgin Galactic. But (laughs) But, um, as long as it has any utility value, it is going to be worth hoarding them for speculative purposes Mm. and the nature of it because there's no central authority it's not like a central bank that can print money or change interest rates to try and keep tap on bubbles and stuff like that it's it's either going to be worth nothing at all and just completely collapse or stay around but just wildly fluctuating price like this i mean it's breaking a thousand now don't be surprised to see it burst drop down to about 500 for a few weeks and go up again to 10,000 or something i've seen um quite reputable people claim that you know based on some back of the packet maths that the eventual price of Bitcoin should be, you know, plus a million dollars. Which I would add at this point that nothing that we're saying in this podcast constitutes investment. Absolutely advice. not. I would not. I would not advise anyone to uh, believe that is so, likely so to happen. So before you rush out and put yeah. your life savings in Bitcoin, that's what some people believe. I am more skeptical than that, but that's what some advocates believe. Well, I'm sure we'll return to it because it does raise a lot of interesting questions. Both about, I mean, it's very. I imagine economists find it phenomenally interesting. They as find a kind it of frustrating currency yeah. in the wild, but also about the idea about. What as more and more of our lives move online, how you kind of whether or not I think I find the peer to peer aspect of it very interesting. Yeah, but, that but seems to be the best thing. I think. The fact that um, a bit like how it, I think the protocol of it is the most interesting thing rather than the bitcoins itself. The idea, I mean, there are loads of other like duplicate coins like Litecoin, Namecoin, Freecoin, all these people that basically do the same thing, but people setting their up their own little sort of split of currencies. Um, it really attracts that kind of like anti-government mindset, both on the right and left, who want to kind of free themselves from the conventional banking system and from government control fiat currency. Um, and there's this idea of the protocol being a bit like how email revolutionised web communication 
um, as a as a standard sort of format, then money changing over the internet via Bitcoin or similar type of processes will become a standard thing. And that's going to be interesting. That is going to be interesting. I think it will probably be a while before the new statesman accepts Bitcoin. But yes. Maybe. If you well, want to send me some, please do. Yeah, <laughs> do send Bitcoin to the usual address. Thank you very much, Ian. Emergency, a new poem by Simon Armitage. The four-pump petrol garage finally closed, its defeated owner inhaling his ghost in a disused quarry by coupling the lips of his car exhaust to the roots of his lungs via a garden hose. On the bulldozed forecourt, they threw up a tram shed for decommissioned emergency vehicles where a skeleton workforce served all manneration of mothballed workhorses for occasional call-outs to sitcoms, period dramas and film sets. And the actual fire stations up for rent, that chapel-shaped building where they stabled the one engine, spit-buffing and wire-wooling the chrome fenders, tea-cutting the steel coachwork to a red flame. So what you see, as the letting agent puts it, is what you get. Boot cupboard, functional kitchenette, Brass hooks, two still holding a brace of yoke yellow plastic helmets, north light roof windows, an inspection pit. The makeshift crew were volunteer part-timers, butchers, outmenders, greasy perchers and hill farmers who'd pitch up in bloody aprons, boiler suits or pyjamas, then venture forth, fire-slaying on the tender. Sometimes in dreams, my firefighting forefathers appear, alien-like, breathing from oxygen cylinders through a sudden parting of towering black cumulonimbus on fully telescoped turntable ladders. The bank's gone as well, and also the post office, though in the store-come-off licence you can still sign a gyro with a string and sellotape-tethered half-chewed biro, or deface a scratch card or sell a bull mastiff. The horizon ablaze. Is it more fire or sundown? In the local tap room. Prescription jellies and tinfoil wraps change hands under cover of looped magazine and tetley beer mats. What is it we do now? You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, available every week on iTunes and from newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.